we're just starting to see in particular an, an explicit pers perspective on diversity from a human factors standpoint. Welcome to HVIC Talks, a podcast produced by the Human Factors Interest Group at the University of Toronto. HVIC is a student chapter of the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society at U of T and consists of students, faculty, and local professionals who are interested in the field of human factors. My name is Kayla, and I'm the current Vice President of HVIG. I'll be hosting this episode of HVIG Talks, part of our series where we speak to professors in the Human Factors Research Group at the University of Toronto. Today's interview is with Professor Greg Jamieson, who runs the Cognitive Engineering Laboratory. If you missed it, you can catch our last episode with HVIG's faculty advisor, Professor Mark Chignall, wherever you listen to podcasts. And with that, let's jump into today's episode with Professor Jameson. So uh, can you tell us a bit about your journey to becoming a human factors prof at U of T? Well, I guess the question is how far does the journey go back? Um, most relevant, I guess, in my mind, I was an engineering student and I was bored being an engineering student. I was bored of just sort of learning um, physical principles and laws and equations and stuff. And um, so I was very fortunate to have a friend who was also in engineering at the University of Illinois. And he was participating in this dual degree program where um, people in engineering could go over to the Faculty of Arts and Science and pick up a second degree in arts and science. And so it was all very well supported, laid out, structured by, by the, the, the two faculties. And he was doing engineering and philosophy. And I thought, oh, well, gosh, you know, that's a lot more interesting in my mind than, than engineering. So I went and I took a look and um, I noticed that uh, psychology was in the list. And I thought that was really interesting. I thought I might like uh, studying psychology. That'd be, you know, kind of uh, would probably spark my interest. And when I started that, I actually, when I went to sign up for it, the, the counselor in psychology said to me, oh, so you're going to do engineering psychology. And I said, yeah, engineering and psychology. And he said, well, you realize that that's actually a thing, right? And I was like, it's uh, no idea, right? So I was not in industrial engineering, so I hadn't taken any human factors. I knew, knew nothing about it as a, as a discipline. And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, he said, uh, there are some people from, or at least one person from, from that department, from the psych department that was doing a seminar that evening. And um, maybe I would want to go check it out. So <clears throat> sure enough, I went and it turned out I went to a seminar that included uh, Chris Wickens from Illinois, <clears throat> Neville Moray, who was then at the University of Illinois in engineering. So Chris Wickens was in the Psychology and Institute of Aviation. And they were being visited by uh, Jim Reason and Jens Rasmussen. And they, that is serendipity. Of yeah, it. no kidding. And they gave a talk. And, and it, bear in mind, I had I'd never heard anything. And I didn't know who any of these people were. <clears throat> and I didn't, I didn't meet Rasmussen again, by the way, until I was a PhD student. Um, and um, so, so that was, and I, and I didn't meet him then, actually, now that I think about it, I didn't meet him that day. So they talked for about an hour and a half. The student group put on this talk. Um, the, uh, the HFES student group at Illinois put on the, the, the talk. And so I was just absolutely blown away by what they were talking about. And at the end, I, they had sort of pointed out, well, these are the two people from Illinois and this person is from 
the Institute of Aviation. This person is from mechanical and industrial engineering. And I said, well, that's where I am. So I'll go talk to him. And so I went down after the, the talk and I met Neville Moray, who then um, turned out it was a very serendipitous time for him too, in the sense that I think he knew he was leaving the institution, but not many other people did. And so he wasn't taking students. So he had room and he had time to, to spend on an undergraduate student. And um, sure enough, he brought me into the lab and I had a chance to work with him and met people like Penny Sanderson and uh, Patty Jones and um, grad students who stayed colleagues of mine throughout my career. And um, it was just sort of a remarkable introduction. Um, and then literally uh, sitting around the lab, <clears throat> I saw a dissertation written by Kim Vicente, uh, who had been a student of, uh, of uh, uh, it depends on who you ask, who his supervisors were. But John, John Flack, uh, Penny Sanderson, uh, um, Neville Moray, um, and also was, uh, was following up work that John Lee had done. Um, so I, I learned about those two people. I ended up doing an internship for John Lee after I graduated at Battelle in Seattle. And then I ended up um, getting introduced to Kim Vicente at a Human Factors Conference and ended up becoming his graduate student. And uh, I don't know, is that enough of the story? Do we, do we need to go any further than that? I mean, I, I think that traces a, a pretty, kind of like a lineage uh, kind of through human factors yeah, with the Rasmussen and Vicente and kind of- There was a lot of names. Anderson, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and that's, you know, I, it was just, I was so fortunate to get exposed to all of these people um, at, at an early point in my life and, and people who were willing to entertain my interest and my ignorance uh, and, and just involve, involve me in, <clears throat> excuse me, in things that, that they were doing that their graduate students were doing. And um, it just, it was very, very fortunate. Well, and having one of your first introductions, the fields be someone, uh, someone as prolific as Wiccans is uh, yeah. pretty so fortuitous. I, I took a I course suppose. from Wiccans shortly after that. Um, I took the Wiccans course from Wiccans, uh, which was fantastic, uh, wonderful learning experience. And I also got involved in the student group, uh, the Human Factors uh, and Ergonomics Society student chapter <clears throat> at Illinois. Um, and, um, and then ended up through that playing soccer with Chris Wiccans. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we, we played, uh, played soccer together a bunch of, uh, a bunch of times. So <clears throat> yeah, it was really, it was a great opportunity to meet those people and see them as, as, you know, sort of fully rounded people who had interest in things beyond their academic lives. So, yeah. Well, I guess we have our uh, Illinois counterpart, uh, HFIG's counterpart at Illinois to thank for one of our faculty members here at U of T. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. That's always good motivation to keep our speaker series going. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, well, can you maybe tell us a bit more about what your lab does now, now that you're here at U of T, what the focus is? Um, whatever we can get people to pay us to do. Uh, that's part <laughs> no, uh, we're, we're interested in how people use automation, generally speaking, in any environment that is uh, safety critical, production critical, mission critical. So we're very interested in, in how people are, are using automation generally to make decisions where those decisions have uh, steep consequences if you, if you perform them poorly. Um, and so mostly our work has been in 
between either the, the production facilities, which could be power production, um, uh, sort of continuous process control, so like oil and gas, chemical, petrochemical settings, and then also in military um, uh, applications as well. Are there any projects you can maybe just give us like a quick example to? Um, so in the, in the lab, um, perhaps the one that is most uh, sort of been front of mind for me most lately is, is the one that you're working on with me that, uh, that Sean Courtshot had, had started looking at adaptive interfaces and using machine learning based classifiers of attentional state. And uh, in, you know, once, once es uh, establishing that attentional state can be identified uh, with a reasonable level of reliability, trying to think about how we can use design, display design interventions to, to try to move people from an undesired attentional state to a more desirable attentional state. Um, so that was, was work that, uh, that Sean started in our, uh, our first collaboration with a Toronto-based company called Uncharted Software. And uh, that ended up leading to another collaboration that we did um, that uh, several, of, uh, several other students worked on related to uh, virtual and augmented reality in um, uh, navigation and in, in using, um, ultimately using augmented reality to navigate through urban and urban environments. Uh, so that's been a characteristic of our research is that the majority of it has been conducted in partnership with, with industry partners who have, um, you know, who have brought, or brought or helped us to identify problems uh, that they were interested in seeing, seeing solutions to. And so that's where your, your project, which is no longer uh, directly connected to, to an industry partner, sort of has its origins in, in that sort of, uh, of collaboration between academe uh, and, uh, and industry. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that often surprises people outside of human factors um, is that we, there's a lot of work that can be done in human factors that kind of spans many different fields, like jumping from aviation to military to cybersecurity. That's something that uh, not many other fields do. Um, so, I, yeah, kind of taking that cybersecurity contract and turning that into a, like a military contract is, is interesting. Yeah, so I've actually all, always been a little bit wary about the ease with which human factors, practitioners, and researchers move their ideas from one application to another, from one discipline to another. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've seen at times that <clears throat> migration of ideas into domains that I know and recognize that those ideas which make sense in, in one area don't make sense in the domains that I'm more familiar with. And, um, and so I'm wary about being a, a, a propagator of that as well. So I, I try to, to be a bit cautious about thinking that the ideas that, that arise from work in a particular domain that I'm knowledgeable about that I would, I would be all, always cautious about bringing those ideas to a new domain. And so we have in our lab in over the years had the opportunities, the invitations to go work in other domains, healthcare being perhaps the most, uh, most 
most common and, and most visible aspect uh, uh, opportunity that we've consistently turned down uh, simply because I don't know anything about medicine and I don't know anything about healthcare and, and surely I could learn, but I've always had the, the, the fear that you know, that the academic imperative to produce new knowledge and publish that I would be under a lot of pressure, my students would be under a lot of pressure to create something in a space that we don't really understand and that that could have, you know, could have negative consequences. So, so I've always been a little bit conservative on, uh, on, on that, uh, in that regard. That's definitely an interesting insight and just as a member of the lab, interesting to know. Yeah. Uh, so pivoting a little bit now uh, to current day, um, looking back on the well, current day and in the past year, um, how has, can you, or can you tell us a bit about how the lab's operations uh, and your research have been affected by COVID? The most obvious and, and immediate effect has been the uh, suspension of all human subjects research. Um, so one of our uh, one of my students, one of your lab mates, Adam Reiner, was was quite close to being ready to collect data on the third experiment from his dissertation. Had spent, um, can't say exactly, but probably the better part of a year designing, implementing, uh, pilot testing a an experiment that we were probably within a, a couple of weeks, maybe a month of running, and then that all just got stopped. Um, and so other other work has has had the same has suffered the same from the same uh, constraint. So we've had projects that were expecting to do in-person data and now data collection have moved online. Uh, we've had projects like yours where we just decided very early on that it was gonna be online. Um, and, and that turned out to be a, a prescient decision. Um, we have other, we've had other students who have simply had to suspend their work. Um, because we could not see a path forward for those, uh, those projects without being able to do uh, human subjects testing. So, um, so COVID's been a real challenge for that. It's also been, you know, the university has made it clear to us that it's pretty much the last thing that they expect to be back up and running. Um, so we know that that's not gonna happen soon. I'd be surprised if we're doing um, in-house human subjects testing in 2021. Um, I suspect we won't see it until until the next calendar year, um, and so that's that's certainly been the biggest impact. Um, a less uh, pronounced impact is is just the the drastic slowdown in our interaction with industry partners. They're under a huge amount of pressure and in, in facing COVID from a um, from a business operations perspective, and research is not really at the top of many people's minds right now. Um, so we have, you know, in, in part, you know, this is in part because we've decided over the years to, to keep our domain selection relatively narrow and the domains that we've been uh, working with a lot are, are domains that are largely impacted by, by what's going on with, um, with the COVID economy. So um, so it's been slow. It's been it's been quiet, and in a way, that's been a nice thing. Um, having this uh, this excuse to slow down a little bit has has been nice. Um, but at the same time, it's um, uh, there is really a, an, an inertia that comes with the research program, 
and uh, I'm I'm becoming increasingly mindful that the inertia has has spun down, and we need to spin it back up again. And so that'll that'll be a a, a, a challenge that we'll be facing certainly um, as as this year goes on. Right, and I mean, you did just mention that you know you stayed away from healthcare, and that's kind of the one area where research is is being funded right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, mean, I I actually can't comment on the funding in that area because I'm just not not aware of it. Um, I am I am aware that um, some of the work, like if you look at the work that uh, Farzan Sasangahar uh, is is doing with uh, with COVID and, and isolation and the impacts of that on on mental health. Um, there are other people who are doing doing similar work. Um, I I've always been um, also a little bit wary about the flavor of the month, um, so you know I'll kind of, of shy away from things until I feel like I'm I'm confident that it's a good research space. There's a lot of work going on in COVID and human factors now, and I'm not sure that I know how how much new knowledge it's creating uh, versus how much it's sort of an applied. Um, uh, applied science response to a situation that we're collectively in. Um, but, uh, you know, that's it, the time will tell. Uh, we'll answer that. So um, I also have been aware, you know, I, I have uh, close colleagues working at um, the uh, Healthcare Human Factors Group at uh, the University Health Network and have, have gotten sort of some insight into how they've been able to directly apply human factors thinking in things like setting up vaccination centers or testing centers, um, and and that that's great to see. You know, not not as much from a research set, uh, perspective, but from an applied perspective, um, that that people who are familiar with healthcare applications and healthcare human factors have been able to respond very quickly to the situation and make good contributions to um, uh, to responding to the um, the pandemic. Right. COVID has certainly upended the status quo in the past year, but there have also been other important changes in the world, especially with respect to social justice and equity. You've been on the hiring committee within the department to find a new human factors faculty member. How has the renewed momentum in equity impacted the hiring process? So uh, essentially what, what we, what we're, what's been on my mind a lot lately is uh, in, in the course of, of trying to hire, of, of executing a search, that in, in a context where uh, we're at a university that has extraordinary diversity in, in the backgrounds of the students that we're, we're teaching, um, and yet being also in a setting in engineering in particular, where we have a, a pronounced underrepresentation uh, particularly of Black and Indigenous people, uh, and wanting to have a positive impact on that. And then when an opportunity comes up to hire, um, we so we as a committee have, have put the effort into um, making sure that we run an equitable search. And that has meant reaching out to, um, in, in the States, and sort of like the um, the indigenous facet is not as pronounced as it is in, uh, in, in Canada. And so many of the people that we've talked to have been people that we've talked to about the underrepresentation of black scientists in, in the human factors discipline. And um, so I went into that process quite ignorant about what the state of the world was um, and really only had some 
just sort of, you know, from, from my own personal experience and exposure and, and knowing people, but also in, in not having been to human conferences, human factors conferences very often in the last number of years, I kind of didn't know where we were. Um, and learning that um, from the perspective of a lot of our, our black colleagues, we're not in a great position as a, as a discipline. Um, that we're not, not, not only are we, um, not only do we suffer from this underrepresentation, we also, um, and this is sort of my, my secondhand compilation of the feedback that I've gotten from, from many people that I've spoken to is that we're not doing enough to encourage it. And, um, and so when, when you go to run a search, and you set this objective of, of trying to find those candidates and include those candidates in the search and in the deliberations, um, they're very difficult to find. And, um, and then that, that causes you to reflect on, well, why is it difficult to, to find these people? Um, and the answer is because we've probably not been doing enough earlier on in the, in the pipeline to, um, to create the, the space for them to work in. And so we've been really, really lucky um, in the sense that we've we've gotten great input from from colleagues, and we really value the the insight that they've given us. Um, and it's it's really driven us, I think, to um, to ask ourselves what we can do differently, um, because clearly we have to do something differently. Because the pipeline of creating the next, you know, next time we hire, it was ten years ago that we hired um, last in human factors. Um, and um, it'll, it'll probably be at least another 10 years before we hire again in our department in human factors and um, after this search. Yeah, I think that's if a really we, important consideration, especially given that, you know, you want to sustain this energy and this movement that's kind of been kicked up within the last year of a focus on equity, diversity and inclusion, but right. um, keeping it in something as sustainable as hiring practices. Yeah, and, and the, the hiring practice comes so far down, you know, so far down the process of, of thinking about, you know, like what is a black or an indigenous, you know, go back to high school or something like that. You know, it's like that's you know where the interest in science and um in, in technology and then you know for, for human factors and human behavior um sort of you know originates and then trying to you know, support those those people and their interests through high school and then into university and then through university and and then into graduate school and then from graduate school into choices about their career options and so you know thinking about where we would want to be from you know 10 years down the road to have a fully representative application applicant pool um, we like we'd have to start that years ago already for for a, a hiring a, a decade from now um, what I will reflect on, though, is what 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 makes me feel like that effort is um, have a great deal of confidence that that effort will be rewarding is the fact that um, human factors has um, has always been a different place uh, with regards to one type of equity, and that is uh, towards women. Um, one of the things that Neville Moray told me is, so bear, bear in mind when I started in the in the field with Neville Moray and. Um, his then wife, Penny, Penny Sanderson, um, was that right from the beginning, um, there were these, you know, these perspectives based on sex right from the beginning in human factors for me. And then going to conferences and having like the realization of how many 
leading thinkers there were already at that time in human factors who are women. And, and so that, that balance, I think, and not to say that it's like, I don't, I don't mean to imply that it's always been a, um, uh, an equitable place, an equitable space, uh, but that there have been many, many women there um, to, as leaders, as thought leaders in the, in the space. Um, when I joined the faculty in our department, there were three women on faculty. Um, today, there are 14. Um, and that's so in, in the 18 years it took us to go from three to 14. Um, on the industrial side, I'd say probably, I mean, I'd, I'd have to go back and look more carefully, but half the hires we've, we've done in the last decade have been, have been women. And um, in that success, to me, it's, it's very salient in how much healthier our department is, how much nicer it is as a place to be. Um, how much more interesting that the variety of research that the, the, the perspectives that are available is so much richer now. And so, and, and I have the, 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 the benefit of having seen it go from, from three to 14. Um, I want to see that same thing happen with black and indigenous people in our, in our faculty. Um, and it's going to be really, really difficult to, to achieve it. Um, but it's, it's having, having watched what we've achieved over the last two decades um, and, and what benefits it's brought just gives me a great deal of confidence that um, we're gonna enjoy the same benefits, if not more, um, out of getting our representation right in that regard as well. Well, I think that's, uh, that's certainly a needed kind of perspective, um, keeping an eye on the future and you know the development of the field is not just uh, the topics that we talk about, but also who's, who's bringing those topics to the table. Yeah, and I think there's also like now we're, we're just starting to see in particular an, an explicit pr perspective on diversity from a human factors standpoint, um, that, that it has a particular meaning as human factors uh, practitioners and scientists. Um, and that's, that's exciting to me. Um, um, I'm, I'm interested in seeing where that where that goes. I think um, we've heard from uh, Enid Montague lately um, it, this this idea that we can actually use technology, use human centered technology to advance our EDI objectives, um, and that's not a perspective that I had a year ago. Like that's not a way that I thought about this problem a year ago. Um, and so simply the fact that that's out there now that it's something that we can think about and contend with and, um, uh, and, and use as a tool to, to address this problem is, is really exciting to me. Right, and I mean, we, we already have the language for it, right? Like in human factors, we say it's applicable at all levels of a complex socio-technical right. system. So, you know, mm -hmm. addressing those earlier systemic barriers is something that we, sh in theory, should be focusing on since we say we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that's what's really you know, exciting. Again, listening to Enid is like, I don't have to learn any new methods. Right? <laughs> I don't I don't have to change what I it's, it's not what I know that I need to change. It's the insight that I have and where to apply what I know. Um, that's that's new and um, and hopefully can can gain traction and, and maybe 
if you if we do another podcast episode some years from now and you ask me what we do in my lab, that could be an answer to the question. So you mentioned kind of not um, going with a flavor of the month, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but are you are you seeing any trends in human factors research over the next few years? Um, kind of, are you seeing any directions in your particular subspecialty that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I think it's it's you know, it's going to going to become a, a everyone I think will, will give a similar answer to this question. Um, artificial intelligence and machine learning applications are, um, I, I think. For those of us who are, are a little bit older, we recognize that this is not the first time that AI has had a surge and, uh, and, and, and threatened to become the thing that would, would dictate the course of our lives. Um, but this one does feel different um, than, uh, than the, the earlier ones. Um, I, I think that we're at a point now where these technologies are widely <clears throat> supported by applications that are in the hands of reasonably knowledgeable people excuse me, spread across a lot of different disciplines. And uh, for that reason, I think you're going to see this evolution of, I I think of it as as an evolution of an automation, of automation technology, of decision support technologies. Um, And I think that there will be a sustained multi-decade phase of research in human factors that will involve the interaction of decision makers with these these tools um, and the, the the depth and the richness of that design problem is um, is is very profound and extraordinarily interesting um, it's m- certainly a very um, multidisciplinary problem uh, that's going to uh, challenge people in computer science and engineering and psychology, and then all the application domains where we're trying to put uh, technology, sorry, uh, put applications based on these technologies into operations. So um, yeah, I think that that's, we, we've been paying attention to this in our, our research. I expect we'll continue to. And um, I, I, I know we'll be in good company with a lot of other human factors people working on similar similar challenges. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, and I guess just before we wrap up, um, any final thoughts, comments, anecdotes you want to throw in? Oh my. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I would say that, and I, I don't know if I'm different from other human factors people like this, but um, as a human factors researcher, I, I go through phases so vacillating between thinking that we are working on the most important thing to thinking that we're, we're just, I don't even know like what, what derogatory phrase to attach to it, but that we're, we're, we're kidding ourselves that we're doing anything of, of use whatsoever. Um, you know, sort of a, <clears throat> an intellectual imposter syndrome at times um, distributed across not, not just myself, but across a whole, um, uh, a whole discipline, a whole academic endeavor. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I go back and forth and it hasn't, um, it hasn't changed in the, you know, now it's going on, I don't know, what year is it now? 21. So like, I mean, it's been like, I've been at U of T since 2002. This is my 19th year here, plus several 
several years of grad school and, and internships and undergraduate training before then. So let's call it 20, 25 years of being involved in the discipline and um, that going back and forth between thinking we're doing something incredibly important and we're, we're, we're having a, a really big impact versus thinking that, uh, that we're just, um, we're kidding ourselves. <laughs> and so that's, that's been the reality of my career. And I, I've never really had a sense of whether other people share that. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to call it. That, that anxiety, um, that, that, that conflagration of self-confidence and anxiety about what it is that, that we do. Um, so, so yeah, I'll just sort of put that out there. That's my, that's my closing thought, but, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to know. Well, that's perhaps a great call out to, uh, the folks listening to this podcast. Let us know. Uh, <laughs> this is a great time to plug, uh, the HFIG social channels. Uh, let us know. Message us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Send us an email. Uh, we'd love to get input on that for sure. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure. It's fun to participate in a very new, uh, new approach to reflecting on uh, on our discipline. So, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of HFIG Talks, and thank you to Professor Jameson for the interview. Stay tuned for our next episode in the series where we speak to another faculty member in the Human Factors Group at U of T.